Hello, welcome to Gunfighter Cast. I'm your host, Daniel Shaw. Today's date is October 20th, 2010. In this episode, I previously recorded a conversation with Rob Pincus. Uh, we talked a lot about combat focus, uh, his program, and what he's got going on, and some of his general thoughts uh, about various topics. I think you're going to get something out of it and really enjoy the interview. Uh, similar to the George Hill interview, it went a lot longer than uh, what I usually put in one show, so I'm splitting it into two parts. So if you're listening to this one, be ready for part two uh, coming out here within the week. Uh, when I started recording this, I had just finished testing uh, my recording software and make sure everything was good with my home phone, and he had called right as I hung up. So I pressed record when we started talking, and it still recognized the old phone number. For some reason and didn't record uh, without going into specifics basically i lost the first 80 minutes of our conversation the reason i'm telling you that you probably wouldn't have known except there's a little bit of redundancy in some of the things we talked about that you might pick up uh rob said the same thing a couple of times and maybe i said the same thing uh, a couple of times and that's why because uh rob actually when i emailed him and I told him that we lost some of the audio he just said all right no problem then uh, i'll just call you back tomorrow at the same time we'll do it again and so he came back on, and I thought that was great of him to do that and, you know, go out of his way to, to help us out and make sure we get the information out there. Uh, and I believe it's good information, and I hope after you finish listening to this two-part episode of the interview with Rob Pincus that you will see as well that getting into a little bit of combat focus and finding that and reading about it and maybe even taking a training course with Rob or one of the other combat focus instructors definitely be beneficial for you some good stuff here all right stay tuned and it's coming up right now hi hello welcome to gunfighter cast i'm your host daniel shaw with me in this episode i have rob pincus hello rob hey daniel thanks for having me on uh, great to be here on gunfighter cast man glad to have you thanks for coming on all right well we're, so we're going to ask you a few questions and uh, i've tried to get a few questions together that i've been asking everybody that uh, i think the listeners would have when they're looking for somewhere to go do some training and get some skills uh basically you know, tell us a little bit about yourself, Rob. What's your background and, uh, you know, the company you represent? Well, the, the fast-forward version of uh, the history that kind of gets us to where we are now is, you know, I had access to firearms and no adult supervision as a kid, you know. And, and I say that kind of half-jokingly, but, but the fact is that I really did do a lot of shooting. I um, was around firearms a lot. and didn't have a lot of formal kind of structured training, you know. Uh, my father was in law enforcement. He ended up going into the private security sector. Uh, I grew up with an interest in guns and, you know, the, the early days of the, the paintball games and, you know, just kind of hunting and target shooting as well as, uh, as I got older, an interest in, you know, what I probably would have referred to as, uh, you know, military or law enforcement or then eventually tactical. You know, now we talk about defensive and counter ambush shooting. And the development of, of what we're teaching today really started way back then and then was strongly influenced by my uh, decision to go into kind of that line of work. Uh, went to a military college, uh, started getting formal training in firearms in the private sector, and, of course, there through the little bit that you get through the military. I ended up being commissioned in the Army Reserve, uh, went on to go into the private sector security uh, industry, also went into law enforcement, did some reserve time, did some active time, patrol uh, in a you know medium-sized city department, uh, eventually getting onto a SWAT team, and then really making the decision in 2001 that where I really wanted to be was in the private sector teaching. And throughout that entire process of shooting and being taught to shoot and teaching people to shoot, um, one of the things that I, I became kind of frustrated with it was uh, 
noticing that the, the training industry itself, both in the public sector and in the private sector, really, to my mind, overemphasized marksmanship and mechanical shooting and fundamental principles that really didn't seem to apply to the dynamic environment of an actual defensive encounter, especially at close range. And when we look at the empirical data that we have a wealth of now and certainly didn't have you know, back then when this kind of journey started, uh, the dash camera videos, the surveillance camera videos of actual fights, well, now we see that we really don't end up in that kind of perfect shooting stance, you know, that weaver position or whatever it is that you spend all that time doing your target shooting in. Then all of a sudden, when it comes time to actually fight, when the bad guy jumps out of the car, we don't see that policeman or that, uh, you know, convenience store clerk in those contrived mechanical shooting positions. So I think that the empirical evidence has, has sort of played out uh, to say that what we've been doing for a long time, what we were doing, uh, in the training industry was really not where we needed to be. It was really an emphasis on target shooting, an emphasis on mechanics, an emphasis on how can I be the best shooter that I possibly can be. And while those are all great for recreation or competition, uh, those are great endeavors, the reality is in defensive shooting, we just need to be good enough as quickly as we can be. And that's really what the combat shooting program is all about. It's about uh, developing intuitive skills. Okay, that makes sense. You know, you started out there. Uh, talking about, you know, coming into it, growing up and everything. I think we all have that in common, the people who take an interest in firearms training and actually become trainers and go uh, further with it and kind of make it their lifestyle or their life's goal or life's mission, if you will. They all kind of started off an uh, environment where they created for themselves uh, their own little martial culture. And, uh, you know, when I grew up, started off beating my neighbors up with sticks, and they'd beat me up with sticks, and we'd be playing games where – we had to fight each other all the time, and then it eventually evolved into, uh, you know, BB gun wars, pellet guns, uh, finally buying paintball guns, and uh, now kids have airsoft, and it's kind of a, uh, I think it's a good base as long as you're doing it safely, I guess you could say. Maybe not the BB gun war so much. Maybe not so much, but I remember when we had the, the original, you know, Daisy uh, airsoft replicas that had little uh, cartridges that had little, you know, plastic pellets to shot out of them, and some of them were spring, and some of them were air, and I can remember chasing my brother around in the front yard with those or, you know, whatever else. And, and uh, you know, whether it was martial arts or wrestling or any of those, uh, I think the, the phrase you, you used when we were talking, uh, getting ready for the interview, was this self-created martial culture. And where you're not in the military, you're not in, you know, an environment like that, but you certainly are, are interested in it. And I think that's what I've found is that everybody who's who's in this profession, maybe not everybody, but most of the people who are in this professionally, there there is a geeky kind of uh interest, you know, a passionate interest in this stuff. And, you know, I know you've had, uh, you know, Masada Uban, and, and obviously he knows uh, an incredible wealth of, of information, studies, especially the shootings and the aftermath and the legal side and everything that he's doing now with Masada Ub group is just really impressive. But it's all, it, what he does in 2010 rests on 30 or 40 years of in-depth, passionate, encyclopedic study of the information that he's talking about in terms of what happens in a gunfight and what are you likely to have to face after you've been in the defensive shooting. Uh, you've had George Hill on. George Hill is another one who is uh, just a wealth of information, and he's like, you know, he's the Wikipedia of guns. I mean, if there's a gun that's come out in the last 10 years and it's gone through uh, a gun shop and a production release, uh, George is one of the guys on a very short list of people I'll call and say, hey, tell me about this gun. What is this gun? One of my students is asking about this gun. If I need to know, you know, to me, that's not my passion. That's not my interest. My interest lies in the neuroscience and the physiology and the anatomy and the empirical evidence of what happens in the moment of the fight and what happens just before you're able to get the gun in your hand. In other words, when you're startled, when you realize you're under attack 
and then what happens as you go through that process of that three to five seconds of response. So all of us that, that are doing this, I, I, there is, you know, we may not be uh, memorizing, you know, lines from uh, science fiction movies or comic books or whatever, but we have that geekiness. It's just we happen to focus on, on firearms and, and martial interests. Yeah, that's the good thing. seems like everybody kind of takes their own piece of the puzzle and puts it together. When I was talking to Mass, uh, he was talking about, you know, the Masada U group where they kind of more focus more on the software than they do the hardware. And it sounds like you're taking a similar approach to where, you know, the software is more important than the hardware uh, in the, the guns, so to speak. And, you know, teaching someone marksmanship, uh, you know, that's, that's not an overly complicated thing. But teaching someone how to think, uh, that gets into a whole different realm. Yeah, there's there's a lot that goes on, and and you know, software versus hardware. I guess combat focus shooting is sort of meets in the middle. In other words, uh, for too long, I think we've had one group of guys who are studying you know w- software issues, tactics, and uh, articulation, and when you can use lethal force and this and that. And we've had this other group of guys who are just high end shooters, um, almost more on the competition marksmanship side, saying, hey, "Here's how you shoot really well," and then you know, kind of throwing that person out in the world and saying, well, I hope they can bridge the gap. And combat focus shooting and, and like all the programs that run at ICT training, I think, try to bridge that gap. We try to bring those two things together because we realize that when you're thinking very clearly sitting in a classroom talking about tactics or when you're in a, uh, a mount site doing the same exact room entry for the fifth time that morning, you're much better able to, to do the cognitive things and the complex thinking. And we also realize that when you're in a competition or when you're just standing in front of a tin can, you can put all the mechanical things together. But how do we really work the small pieces of the cognitive thinking we need? Of course, we need to process information. And the small pieces of the mechanical control of the gun, we need to be accountable for our shots and do them on demand, you know, truly on demand when we need to in the fight. That's really where we're focused. Okay. All right. Give me your thoughts on why an armed citizen should go out and get some formal training from an organization like yours uh, or maybe a law enforcement officer should go outside of his department to get a little bit more than he's required to have. Well, I think that one of the problems we have is that the any bureaucracy, any uh, whether that's military unit or uh, police agency or the, the issuing body in your state that hands out concealed carry permits, any of those bureaucracies really are just putting together programs that I call check-the-box programs. They're putting together programs, for the most part, that are there to ensure that someone meets a minimum level of skill or a minimum level of knowledge in order to be able to do something, in order to be able to you know, carry the gun, be a police officer, deploy on a combative mission in a military environment, or uh, carry the gun in a public environment as far as CCW goes. So what those agencies are really at least as worried about is protecting themselves. So there's something bad happens. They can say, well, this person met the minimum requirements. And, and that's almost necessary in some of the organizations that are just so large and so cumbersome that it's going to be hard to do much else, especially when you're dealing with the lowest common denominator skill level. Um, you can get into all, all kinds of questions. You know, well, we need military. We need to put people out there in harm's way to defend themselves. So we need to have our standards low enough so that we can have, you know, a, a military. Uh, in law enforcement, well, this is people's livelihood. You know, unlike in, in some European countries, there are some police officers that carry guns and some police officers that don't. Here in the United States, if you're a police officer, you've got to have a gun. So if we fail you because you can't shoot very well, or if we put the standards too high, all of a sudden you lose your job and you can't feed your family. Um, that's obviously a, a huge burden on, the, on that bureaucracy. If we look at uh, the concealed carry permit issue, the issue is that this is a right guaranteed by the Constitution, and, and as most people would argue, we don't need 
to have the government saying, okay, you meet the minimum requirements, because guess what? There are no minimum requirements spelled out in the Constitution. So the higher we make that bar to jump through, the more expensive we make it, the more time-consuming we make it, then the more of a, of a civil rights issue we start to get into with the government restricting, by default, through education requirements, uh, that you, you can't carry a gun. You know, you go back, it's like Jim Crow laws that said you had to be able to read in order to vote. Well, that nowhere in the Constitution does it say you have to be educated to the level of reading to vote. Similarly, nowhere in the Constitution does it say you have to be, you know, tactically capable of defending yourself with a gun in order to carry one or own one. So the, the idea is that we get into these bureaucratic situations where you're just going to check the box and have a minimum level of, of training and a minimum level of qualification. And that's really the emphasis on the qualifications, not the actual skill development. So people behaviorally, um, whether we joke about it or not, we are kind of hardwired to trust those entities, those governing bodies. So for a police officer, we trust the state agency that, that oversees our training. If we're a citizen, then we, we put value in what the state says about our ability to carry a gun or not. And whether we like it or not, like I said, emotionally, we may not want to do that, but intellectually, we know that it's there. So when we get this little piece of paper that says you are capable of carrying gun in public, we just say, okay, great, good, I am qualified, quote unquote, you know, I am ready to go. And that does put a big behavioral emphasis on going in and getting more training. I think it takes a, a mature person and a disciplined person to look at that and say, wow, the system isn't set up to make me as capable as I can be. It's simply set up to prove that I'm meeting some minimum standard. So that's the first reason that everybody should go out and get more training if all they've done is quote-unquote qualify, because qualification doesn't really mean anything except you met the minimum standard. Well, the minimum standard shouldn't be good enough for anybody, so everybody should be out there trying to get better training and really explore their own capabilities, push themselves to their limits. Uh, you know, where they train, who they train with, that's another big question. Um, in, in fact, a question we just tried to answer through um, Personal Defense Network. Uh, we now have a, a about an eight-page document that's going to go out to everybody who registers over there. Of course, it's free. Um, when you register at personaldefensenetwork.com, you're going to get um, sort of my advice, uh, the, the, our organization's advice on how to sift through the many, many different schools that are out there and, and in many different training locations. You know, do you want to travel for training or train at home? Uh, travel in an outdoor venue, uh, train in an indoor venue, train in an outdoor venue, um, those kinds of things, those types of questions. But I think that starting the process of who should I train with, where should I train, really should be automatic. Um, it, it does sort of uh, bother me that there's so many people who are actually under the impression that they don't need to train more. So I think it's a great question, and I think there is an answer. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty easy behavioral science answer of why people think they don't need to train. But if anybody's listening to Gunfighter Cast, I think they're probably already over the hill and they realize that, that training is important. Yeah, they're already looking for different areas to tap into to learn things from. You know, there's free resources like myself and uh, other podcasts on the Gun Rights Radio Network and others that aren't even in the network. Uh, even your podcast that you kind of quit on us with uh, before that uh, if anybody – I quit on you. I'm sorry. I, I decided to do television instead, but yeah. I, oh, I don't blame you. I would make that switch too if I had the opportunity. <laughs> I don't blame you. Yeah, at all. Um, I appreciate you mentioning that. That podcast was, was kind of an experiment, you know, and, and um, you know, I know you've listened to them, and, and as you know, only a couple of them were actually like, here is a podcast that we're going to do. And I think like one of them was the one I did with uh, Michael Bain and Mike Janet to, to uh, talk about the upcoming series, the Best Defense series. But for the most part, those podcasts were really just recordings and lectures from classes, um, especially for my instructor development classes. And um, 
those were fun to put up, and it was great to get the feedback on. And I think that's why they're still out there. You know, I don't, I don't know, there's six, eight, nine of them, whatever there is. They're still out there from a few years ago because they do give a great kind of introduction and overview to what the combat focus shooting program especially uh, is all about. Well, you know, actually, when I got into podcasting, uh, I was listening to some other podcasts, and I said, you know what, I could do this about guns. And uh, I bought a microphone and discovered the Gun Rights Radio Network and a lot of podcasts on iTunes. And uh, yours was one of the first I found. I was like, what is this combat focus shooting, and who's this Rob Pincus guy? And I was like, wow, that's pretty good. And then I just kept expanding from there and found all the other podcasts and sent an email to the Gun Rights Radio Network. And they're like, heck, yeah, man, come be a podcaster with us. We'll help you out. And it uh, kind of kicked off from there. So you're Very actually cool. one of the first I listened to. Well, that's awesome. Well, I'm, I'm glad that uh, it, the quality wasn't so bad that it made you think it was all silly because some, some of the first ones are rough. Well, you know, it's pretty clear that you were, for the most part, standing in a classroom teaching to a class and not talking to uh, listeners that were downloading because, I mean, you, they were seeing illustrations right. that we couldn't see and that kind of thing. But, you know, that's still lots of good information. Uh, and by all means, anybody listening out there on iTunes, just pretty much put in uh, Rob Pincus or uh, Combat Focus, and you should be able to find those on iTunes. Okay, Rob, how important do you think it is for an instructor who teaches how to survive a deadly force encounter to have actually been in a deadly force encounter? Well, I think, I think it's pretty, it's pretty well known that, that I have never been, uh, you know, in a situation where I had to use a firearm to defend myself, never had to pull the trigger in that environment. And, and I'm really obviously very glad for that. Uh, you know, I jokingly say uh, that if I'd have realized how good it would have been for marketing, there were a few shots I should have taken. Um, you know, in, in a law enforcement environment, um, you end up in those situations. If you're doing much at all uh, over any period of time, especially if you're trying to be assertive and you know trying to find the bad guys, so to speak, um, you're going to end up in those situations. And of course, I was in a few of those situations. And you know, articulably, legally, by policy, by doctrine, could could shots have been fired? Sure. Um, I don't think that the fact that I did not pull a trigger makes me less capable of helping other people prepare to pull the trigger. And the interesting thing is there's some instructors out there. I was talking with uh, James Yeager on, on his podcast, actually. You know, he was in a situation where he taught for a long time. Then he was in a situation where he needed to use a gun to defend himself and, and obviously is still teaching very successfully with that response. And, and he's spoken to how he doesn't perceive any great difference um, in terms of the actual efficacy of his training from one era to another. Uh, of course, most people that are in the industry uh, that have been in shootings that is seen as a positive. It's seen as, hey, let's go learn from this guy. And I certainly don't think it's a negative. But I do have some questions, not just to those instructors, if they're using that as a marketing technique, you know, to say, well, I've been there, done that. I've seen the elephant come train with me. But especially for the students, the wood students who say, well, I want to train with someone who has been in a gunfight. And the three questions I'll, I'll suggest that they ask are, one, are you going to teach me exactly what happened in the fight? Are you going to teach me to do what you did in your fight? Well, if, again, if you go back to the dash cameras, if you go back to the surveillance camera videos, a lot of the things that happen in a gunfight aren't by any means perfect, aren't by any means pretty. They just sort of happen. The gun's out there uh, half the time. That it's, you know, really horrible shape, maybe an unsupported platform. Uh, we'll see people looking away from the gun. We'll see people clearly with their eyes closed. We'll see people just slapping the trigger. We'll see a very low hit percentage in some of these shootings. Um, you know, is that what we want to teach people just because it worked? You know, and, and I think you and I talked at one point and, and we were talking about the idea that if it works in a fight, it works. That good for you. You get a gold star and you won. 
But that doesn't necessarily mean it's what we want to do the next time we're going to fight or what we're going to train to do the next time we're in a fight. So question number one, do you have a dash camera video? Do you have a surveillance camera video of your fight? And is that what we're going to learn? Are we going to learn exactly the same thing? Uh, question number two would be, are we going to learn exactly what you did prior to your fight, regardless of what happened in your fight? Uh, obviously, the premise being, well, the training that I got for three years, five years, 10 years, 15 years before I was in my gunfight contributed to my survival in that fight, even if it doesn't look anything like what actually happened in the fight. You know, and that's, that's obviously uh, someone who, who trains, you know, in that target shooting environment, does the qualifications, every, you know, twice a year, uh, shooting in the weaver position, and then they get into a counter-ambush mode, and the gun just goes out. It's a one-handed shot you know, while moving, while ducking, while crouching, whatever, and the bad guy goes down. Well, it doesn't look anything like the training that happened before the gunfight, but on the premise of this is what got me through it, I'm going to teach you this, uh, some instructors will kind of stick to here's what I did prior to being in my gunfight. And again, I see some incongruency there. I think the best answer, uh, the best proposal is, are you going to teach me what you now think would be best based on a combination of what you did prior to your fight and the research and the analysis of your actual fight? And I think that's really, hopefully, that's what most of these guys are doing. Is they're saying, okay, I trained this way for X number of years. I was in a fight. This is what actually happened. And now, therefore, I am going to teach this, which is sort of a, an amalgamation of uh, all those different factors, as well as hopefully things that, that, that have nothing to do with the gunfight or their history and things they've seen from other people and they think are good and they've they brought into their programs. And I think there's a lot of guys out there doing that. So I certainly don't want to disparage you know, anybody who's been in a gunfight. But uh, you've got to be a little bit skeptical when someone's using um, what, what sometimes comes down to luck or sometimes comes down to a whole bunch of bad decisions that led up to needing to shoot to defend yourself. Uh, as a basis for their marketing, you know, of why you should trade with them. Uh, I think I think it's really important to ask about that dash camera video or the surveillance camera video or the combat camera videos, um, because we know that memories aren't formed uh, the same way under critical incident stress. You know, ask any cop, eyewitness testimony is kind of useless, and first-person eyewitness testimony, people telling you what they did, um, is often proven very, very wrong uh, when you when you look at the tapes or even by going back to that third-person um, witness testimony, when you have overwhelming witness testimony that one thing happened, but somebody swears something else happened, we know the, we know the neuroscience of that. So um, we have to be really careful about, hey, here's what I did in a fight as a basis for a technique or a procedure. Yeah, you know, that makes sense. And I've talked to people before, and I've read on numerous forums where, you know, individuals are looking for a place to train, and they're saying, you know, I don't want to train with them because they've never, they're going to teach me how to get in a gunfight, but they've never done it themselves. And I, I see that quite often and, you know, honestly, I think it's it's a bit ignorant uh, or, you know, maybe naive, maybe ignorant is a little bit strong word. But, uh, you know, just because I've been in gunfights in Iraq doesn't mean I'm qualified to teach you how to survive, you know, an active killer going through a mall and protect your family. It doesn't mean I'm going to be able to help you survive when those two individuals walk up to you at a gas pump trying to steal your money and your car and they draw their weapons. You know, my fight is so much different. Uh, than what they are. I knew I was going to fight uh, every single time I got in a fight. I, I was ready to do it days in advance, sometimes even weeks in advance. And I somewhat knew the terrain, and I knew enough about my enemy to kind of know what they were going to be doing. I didn't know where they were and the specifics of everything, but I was mentally prepared going into it. There was no actual real surprise where it, a lot of civilians and law enforcement find themselves in. So just because I've been in a fight, 
I don't think that makes me more qualified to teach anybody. I don't think anybody should come visit me and learn from me uh, before they would you just because you haven't. That, that just doesn't make any sense to me. And there's so many different uh, dynamic situations out there. Uh, no one person can have it all and been in every type of gunfight. It's like Masada Ayub said when he was on the show. Uh, their odds are, get, are eventually going to run out, and they're not going to survive one uh, while they're in that process of being in every type of engagement. So, uh, yeah, I, I just think it's kind I of I agree ridiculous. with that. It, I think what those people do have to offer, anybody who's been through that situation and is willing to share the great value they bring to the community really is in dealing with the aftermath. Um, to a certain extent, maybe the emotions in the moment, but especially um, an accurate uh, description of the emotions after the fact. And of course, that's going to be different from person to person, but being able to share what they went through emotionally, what they had went through dealing with their family, what they went through maybe dealing with their administration or with the military and how their engagement dealt with the rules of engagement um, when they were in the military environment, those types of things, there's a huge wealth of knowledge and information and really important lecture and classroom stuff that comes from that. And a lot of guys are very open about sharing that that part of the information. But in terms of the fundamental skill development or the development of tactics and techniques, I, I don't think there's a huge difference uh, in terms of the, the ability for someone to study the, in, the situation uh, objectively and really come to some really good conclusions. All right, Rob, what, what sets you apart from other companies that basically do the same thing? Uh, the main thing that ICE training programs approach uh, differently, I think, is the this question of performance on demand, um, this question of, of processing information prior to the execution of a complex motor skill. Uh, this is this is vitally important. Um, it, it's overlooked in almost every program that I look at. Uh, basically, in the shooting industry, most people think of performance on demand as a buzzer goes off and you do something. The problem with that sports athletic kind of what I call the free throw uh, measurement is that your brain and specific parts of your brain that control motor function and your muscles are all primed and your cognitive brain, the neocortex, is focused very specifically on that task just before you actually need to do it before the buzzer goes off. So it really is this huge cheating. It's this huge setup. And, and you mentioned, like, when you were in your gunfights overseas, uh, you knew, you know, days in advance you were going out on this mission, you were going out on this operation, there was most likely going to be uh, gunfire. Well, the average person is, like, trying to decide between chocolate and vanilla, standing in the convenience store, and then they have to shoot someone. And they had, well, you know, like, zero-level anticipation of the need to shoot that bad guy just before they realize, oh, my God, I need to shoot a bad guy, when the guy pulls the gun, pulls the knife, whatever it is. And that's a huge difference. And anybody who studies the physiology, the anatomy, the behavioral science, and neuroscience will tell you huge, huge difference. So when we try to measure skills, or even when we try to develop skills, and we don't include that processing of information just prior to the execution of the complex motor skill, we really aren't doing counter-ambush training. We really aren't doing defensive training. So, you know, I'll jokingly ask my class, you know, when we'll get about halfway through the first day, and I'll say, okay, how many of you are assassins? How many of you are here training to be professional assassins? You know, and of course, nobody raises their hand, but the idea is that if you're training to be a professional assassin, then that, that on the buzzer, quote-unquote, on demand, or that competition environment on demand is accurate and valid, and that's what you should be doing. But if what you're really planning on doing is defending yourself uh, when someone attacks you, then standing there and getting staged in your perfect position and waiting for a buzzer has nothing to do with your fight for all practical purposes. 
So what we do that's really different than that focus shooting program is, is 95% of the time when you're standing on our line, you're going to have to process a command. The command might be a command that means multiple shots into the high set of chest, or the command might be a command that means one shot into the, the head, or one shot into a triangle with a three on it, or whatever. Uh, you have to process the information before you can execute the complex motor skill, and that is really developing that relationship between the defensive shooting and the cognitive processing of information. So we know that's what a real ambush is going to be like. You're going to be walking through the mall thinking about buying a T-shirt or wondering where your daughter is, and boom, the guy pulls out the AK-47 and starts shooting. That's the moment that you now have to apply your fundamental skills on demand. So I, I talked about the free throw is the competition environment that, you know, the steel challenge match or the IDPA match where you get a walk through or here's where you're going to shoot this guy, shoot this guy, pick up this gun, do a reload, shoot that guy, whatever. Those are all free throws. Uh, the, the real fight is a, a sky hook from beyond the three-point line under double coverage at the buzzer. You know, and you're never going to be in that exact same position with those exact same defenders at that exact same distance with that same momentum moving in one direction ever before or ever again. But you've got to put the ball up at that moment. The ball doesn't get in the air and head towards the basket. Your team's not going to win. And all you can do, all you can do in that moment is apply the fundamentals that you've developed over time and apply the, the expert level recognition that you have of how far away you are from the net and how hard you have to throw the ball and how high you have to arc the ball to get over the defenders and all that stuff. Maybe how high you have to jump. All those things, all that timing is really done in a split second application of fundamentals truly on demand in a unique situation, that's what you're going to have to do to defend yourself. So that's what we emphasize. It's not about being the best shooter you can be when everything's perfect. It's about how can you be an efficient shooter? In other words, how can you be effective with as little time, effort, or energy as possible? You know, we, we talk about being intuitive, um, which we call combat focus shooting, the, the intuitive shooting program. And for us, that really means working well with what the body does naturally. So the other thing that we'll do very differently is we don't start out from how can we make you the best mechanical Terminator robot shooter in the world. We start out with, hey, you're a human animal. These are the things that are very likely to happen. We can, we can look at the clinical studies. We can look at the dash camera videos. We can look at the surveillance tapes. We know what's going to happen to a large degree. We can guess to a high level of, of probability the type of fight you're going to be in to defend yourself uh, when you need to defend yourself in your home or outside the home. And we can then develop methodologies for training and techniques uh, for the actual shooting that are congruent with those circumstances. And that's what we mean by intuitive. So if you go back and read stuff I wrote, you know, a decade ago or 12, 15 years ago, you'll see me use the word instinctive. Um, and that was a misuse of that word. You know, instinctive things are automatic reactions to stimuli. Um, we know what they are. They're very predictable. What we want to do is develop intuitive skills that work well with those things in the context of an actual fight. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and I like that uh, that whole thought process on that. It really does. And you've said a couple of times you've kind of mentioned bringing up the isosceles, and then uh, you'll bring up the weaver in a somewhat negative fashion, uh, putting it with uh, competition-style, controlled environment uh, shooting. You know, I'm, I'm of the same belief in that. And every time I've seen it, uh, like like you said, uh, in these fights, these dash cam videos, I think we were talking before, uh, and you were talking about how they're, they're getting full extension in these videos. Uh, they're, they're not, even though they, they are always training Weaver, when it actually comes down to it, they're, 
maybe in some weird hunched over protecting their body position, but having you know full extension and almost in a in a isosceles position. And I think that's uh, important. Like you said, I can't remember the exact words you use, but using what the body already does naturally to help out with, uh, right. with the, learning those skills. Um, that makes so much sense. And which is one thing that I always try to emphasize on Gunfighter Cast and when I'm teaching somebody is. Keep it natural. Don't do anything abnormal. Uh, just if your magazine pouch placement, something simple like that, you a thousand times a day, you probably put your hand in your pocket and you bring it up to scratch your face. You cross that same line a thousand times with that left hand or that non-firing hand, so you're probably crossing where your magazine pouches should be uh, for that pistol rig or maybe even with your carbine. Uh, just anything standing erect, standing up straight, head and eyes front, uh, shoulders squared, arms extended, whatever, that's where you're going to move. You're not going to be in that weird sideways shuffle step that you would be in that weaver position. Uh, just any, if you can keep everything as natural as possible, if you don't do that, I think you could be counterproductive and, uh, maybe even, you know, have a, a conflict between your training scars and what your body wants to do naturally in that situation. Does that make sense? Absolutely, and that's where we get that hesitation. You know, for example, we integrate the uh, the flinch. We integrate a startle response, lowering center of gravity, focusing on the threat, and moving your hands towards your line of sight in our training. And those are we we talk about the body's natural reactions, and and we always express them as a survival positive. We don't we don't talk about um, tunnel vision, like a loss of peripheral vision, because that's not actually physiologically that's not what's happening. What actually happens under dynamic critical incident stress is that you get a rise in your visual acuity in the center of your photovision so that you can take more information in uh, that the limbic system, especially in other parts of the brain, can use that information to help you defend yourself. This is a huge survival positive. You know, moving the hands to the line of sight towards your threat, moving the, the hands to intercept the threat, huge survival positive. So we talk about these things in terms of their survival positive to, to help people understand them better and, and to realize that even if you could kind of out-train them in that Terminator robot sense, you know, clockwork orange conditioning sense. We don't want that. We, we don't want to get rid of these things. These things are good. But they do lead to issues. For example, if you have uh, practiced your draw stroke over and 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 over again from hands at your waist or hands down at your side position, then you get in an ambush moment, your hands come up towards your face, and you reach back to draw your gun, you may fumble the, the removal of your uh, thumb brake, you know, or whatever your retention device is, because you've only practiced it from this contrived ready position or, or imagined unready position. You haven't actually practiced it in a way that you have a uh, actual processing of information so that you actually need to deal with how do I get my hand from where it's going to go naturally to the actual gun. So if you practice your draw, from your hands at your side over and over and over again, and the buzzer goes off, you move your hand. The command is given, you move your hand. You come in towards the gun from the side, your hands like down at your pockets, because we used to imagine that was the worst-case scenario. It was like your hands in your pockets, your hands just down at your side, not in your you know magic ready position. Well, now we know, of course, empirically, and probably if we would have thought about it 20 years ago, it would have been pretty obvious, too. Our hands are actually going to be up by our head, defending us. Our hands will come up to defend us when we, re- when we actually get startled. So now... If we practiced our draw stroke from hand at our side, you know, a, th- a thousand times, and in the actual fight, our hands are up by our face, now when we reach for the gun, we might fumble the removal of our thumb strap or whatever our retention device is. And that's that hesitation. That's that incongruency between the way we train and the way we fight that causes the problems in the middle of the fight. So, again, Integrating what we do naturally, recognizing what we do naturally, studying it, researching it, really thinking about it, not trying to outdo it, but trying to work well with it. That's the, the 
core of intuitive skill development. Rob, what are you doing to keep your curriculum current and develop new curricula to address the needs of your students? You know, as you obviously you write a book and you're I'm sure you're still researching and getting all that stuff done and, and keeping up with that and probably working on three books right now. Who knows what Rob Pincus is doing? But uh, what are you doing with your actually the combat focus shooting and your instructors to keep that curriculum current and make sure you're walking on the same page? Well, the biggest thing, um, kind of like you said, and I have other instructors out there, but that's the biggest thing that keeps us fresh is we, we run instructor development programs. Now we're probably doing four or five a year. Um, this, this constant influx of, of fresh minds and guys who are eager to find efficient ways to teach people how to defend themselves with firearms uh, coming into the program and asking questions and kind of challenging some of the material and, you know, hey, this is what I've done or what about this or I did the drill with this group of students and, you know, we have an instructor conference every year. We have a, an instructor forum that's private just for our instructors. And we're probably getting close to about 80 people or so who uh, are certified to teach. We have a, historically a 50% or less uh, certification rate. The last instructor uh, development program we ran, we had seven guys signed up in the class and we certified two. Um, now, certainly other guys are eligible to continue to work, to retest, to study. Uh, it doesn't cost them anything else. They just have to put in the time, effort, and energy. And some guys have taken, you know, well over a year to get certified from the time they started that, that four-day class. And everyone has to have trained with us as an end user before they start that four-day class uh, anyway. So there's a lot of study and a lot of work that goes into it, which means I, the guys that are combat focus shooting instructors are thinkers. And because they're thinkers, they're, they're open to uh, an understanding the need to evolve. You know, and, and obviously this year, for those uh, people who follow my work, maybe some of your listeners, uh, we put out the Combat Focus Shooting Evolution 2010 book uh, back in April. Uh, that book it replaces the book that was written in 2006. Um, the book that was written in 2006 was a great book in 2006, but, but I discontinued it earlier this year, and we're not going to do any more print runs on it because it is outdated. You know, the, the program has evolved because we ask questions, because the students especially, they ask questions. They, they come to us. Um, with great insightful ideas, and they come to us with great challenging questions that force me and everyone else involved in program development to look harder at the problem and come up with better answers or different answers for different people um, that, that satisfy their learning model or their prior experience. So, um, you know, I joke, I say the first book was about 120 pages. Um, 80 of them were worth reading and 40 were important, right? So there's some fluff in there. There's some background. There's acknowledgments. There's things like that. The new book is 220 pages, and we haven't added any fluff. You know, the new book is, is literally another 100 pages of important, worth-reading information, and I think it, it just eclipses um, that previous work by, by a long shot. Um, it's just so much better, and I'm so much prouder of it. But, you know, in 2006, I was really proud of that book. So I think that the Combat Focus Shooting Program went through this huge development phase um, from about 2001 when I left uh, law enforcement, decided to go into training full-time, until... Uh, that, that book came out 2005 into 2006. Uh, huge development process. Um, obviously, the Valhalla Training Center, um, working with the staff, having to do instructor development with them, having the opportunity to get involved with, uh, at that time, I was doing a lot of work with um, Naval Special Warfare, with uh, Special Forces. We had a lot of military, high-end military students. Um, we still do some work with, with both those organizations, um, but not as much as we were during that 2004, 2005, 2006 period. But their influence, um, their questions, um, catering the program to everything from corporate team building people that came through the resort component uh, of Valhalla, all the way through, you know, who never touched a gun, all the way through the high end guys who were really busy and really active in a military or law enforcement environment, 
And then always dealing with that kind of middle ground student, the concealed carry person, the home defense person, the average law enforcement officer, really helped us develop and find a lot of the core fundamentals and the articulations of those fundamentals um, that exist that had actually existed for a long time in the combat focus program uh, prior to the Valhalla era. What the new book represents is really this this another another great jump in development that came from being on the road constantly and traveling and teaching in different countries and teaching all around the, the, the U.S. and, you know, being on 30 or 40 different ranges a year, uh, just the company, let alone what the outside instructors are doing, leads to development. It leads to new drills. It leads to better answers to, quest- to questions. It leads to new questions when we expose ourselves to new, to new audiences. So the main way that we continue to ensure that we're going to be uh, evolving is by continually exposing ourselves to new students and new venues and uh, new instructors coming into the program. And, uh, you know, I think it's something I'm very proud of. That's one of the questions I think a student needs to ask uh, any potential instructor. You know, what's something you've changed your mind about? Because if you've been involved in the training industry for, for any number of years, and if you've been busy and you've worked with any number of students, and especially if you have been a student yourself as uh, you continue to, to learn while you're teaching, you're, you have to have changed your mind about things. And, and if you haven't, I think there's an ego issue or there's a, maybe an intellect issue. You just don't get it. I, I don't know what, what the issue would be, but if you haven't evolved, if you've been in this, this, this situation of teaching and learning for, for three, four, five, 10, 15 years, and your program hasn't changed at all, um, something's really wrong, I think. Uh, and that's where a student really needs to kind of raise an eyebrow and steer clear because uh, it's just not the way the world works. Everybody evolves. Every industry, every body of information gets better over time. If you just try, if you apply yourself and you, and you try to learn. Yeah. You know, I encounter a lot of those same things you just described all the time as a Marine. Uh, you know, I, I subscribe to a lot of people's thinking like like yours, Mass, George, uh, some other guys. You know, I've read a lot of Bill Rogers stuff and uh, Jeff Cooper. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of knowledge out there that you can get from other people. There's a lot of, a lot of stuff I've learned from students and a lot of stuff I've learned from schools in my experience. And sometimes, you know, the Marine Corps itself, and we've came a long way in the last few years in our marksmanship program uh, and our actually, you know, uh, going into the Combat Hunter program, which is uh, a very good program. And, uh, you know, I'll be on a range and they'll say, well, I have a certain amount of ammo and there's a jaw do basically whatever you want. You know, we know what, know what you're doing. Teach us some stuff. And then somebody will come out there and they'll see me with the guys uh, drawing from the holster and backpedaling and putting two shots in the chest of, of two targets and then coming back to headshots. And they're like, what are you doing backpedaling? Marines don't backpedal. You backpedal, you can't see the ground behind you. You're going to fall down and die. That was the way of thinking all through my time growing up. You backpedal, you, you know, you don't always take ground. You never give up ground. And it's just trying to explain that to somebody who just doesn't get it and is so brainwashed, I guess you could say. Uh, I was always taught not to backpedal. It's, you're going to die. If you're going to fall down and die, like, there's just no reason to backpedal. Um, and they're, they're not, like you said, uh, uh, intellectually challenged maybe because um, sometimes somebody might have a knife right in front of you and you want some reactionary distance. There, there's things that can apply to, and uh, I guess you just got to be open to that change uh, and accept it. Yeah, Ben, I think you have to avoid, uh, you have to avoid absolutes. You know, there aren't a lot of always, there aren't a lot of nevers. Um, in, in fact, one of the, the articles that um, listeners can find online, uh, and I don't know if you've read it or not, but it, it's called Respectful Irreverence. And if you just Google Respectful Irreverence or maybe Respectful Irreverence and, and Pink has put my name in there, you're going to find a couple links, I'm sure, to um, what I originally did as a guest blog for the uh, Breach Bang Clear guys. And it was an article that really stemmed from a question. Um, one of my students, uh, who had been a longtime student of mine, was going through the instructor development program. There was a there was a bookshelf um, at this particular training venue that 
that was my bookshelf. It was like, these are the books that kind of Rob recommends. If you're going to sit around and read in the lobby or read in the waiting area, read during lunch, read some of these books. They're good. But one of those books was by uh, Bill Jordan, No Second Place Winner. Uh, great book, cool book. I uh, had, had the pleasure of talking to uh, Bill Jordan a couple times um, before he passed. And amazing guy, um, you know, American hero, law enforcement hero, that kind of thing. Um, but he has some really ridiculous things in that book. Um, some of the things that he writes about technique, you know, you, you should relax and move your hand in a circular motion as you draw your gun and shoot from the hip. Uh, you know, just things that we would never teach anybody in 2010 to do or we wouldn't even think possible. You know, just relax when you're being ambushed and, you know, this kind of thing. Well, at his time, when he was writing that, he didn't have the benefit of the neuroscience research and, and empirical data that we have from clinical studies and uh, fMRI imaging and, and athletic science, sports science. It tells us how the muscles and, and nerves and tendons and ligaments all behave under stress. Uh, we didn't have dash camera videos of his own fight, certainly, or surveillance camera videos. So he was doing the best he could, and he was trying to articulate as best he could what he thought would help people survive and win gunfights. Well, the fact that, that what he said now seems ridiculous doesn't make him any less cool. Uh, and, in fact, good for him for trying to share that information um, with people that, that needed it and wanted it. So the question the student asked me was kind of like, well, how can you recommend that book when you obviously don't agree with what he's teaching? And the thing is, the book, you know, if the book's 80 pages long, 30 of them are about shooting techniques and 20 of them are about gear and another 30 of them are about his history as a law enforcement officer and kind of descriptions of the things he dealt with. So there's a lot of good information there. Um, so it came to the question of how do you deal with bad information from good people? And, you know, I talked to a couple guys, especially some of the guys who've been in the industry a lot longer. Um, you know, how do you guys deal with bad information from a good person? What if you know this guy's awesome and he's worthy of respect and he deserves medals and adoration, but he says something that's just completely ridiculous um, in, in terms of skill development, tactic, uh, tactics, techniques, whatever. How do you deal with that? And, you know, the overwhelming response you can imagine was, who are you to question X? You know, whether it's Bill Gordon or, or Jeff Cooper or anybody else. And, you know, that kind of misses the point. Uh, that's not a critical thinking response. That's just, you know, a blinders on, kind of like you said, brainwashed response is, well, if this guy said one thing that was cool, or if he did one thing that was cool, then I'm going to listen to everything he says. And on the other hand, if I don't like somebody, let's say there's somebody who, you know, there might be somebody out there who has some really good information that did something really stupid. You know, he, he got into legal trouble or, you know, he, he uh, divorced your sister or whatever. I don't know what it is this guy did to piss you off, but if what he says is brilliant, then you need to accept it for what it is. Um, and that led to this article called Respectful Irreverence and the idea that um, we need to evaluate material objectively and, and people subjectively, and the source isn't really what matters as much as the value of the information. We need to think about it critically and ask some really important questions and avoid always and never and things like that. So I, I think the Respectful Irreverence article is really important, and it, um, it it does really, in some ways, get back to your question of how do we stay relevant, how do we continue to evolve in this program, and what kind of people do I look for to teach the program? Because there's a lot of combat-focused shooting instructors out there teaching the program now. I look for people who can be respectfully irreverent and, and really challenge material and try to come up with the best things, including challenging me. Uh, you know, we tell people that you don't do anything just because Rob Pink has said so. That's That's not a good reason to do anything. Yeah, we're not talking about getting a NRA pistol instructor certification. You know, you actually have uh, you know high standards, and 
uh, almost to the, what obviously you're not able to just hand pick people. People are going to approach you and then you're going to be able to decide yay or nay. And, uh, they're going to have to meet the criteria and, uh, also obviously, you know, pass and be accepted, uh, that you want someone, uh, representing you and the combat focused shooting. Yeah, I make no apologies to the guys. You know, they know when they sign up for the class um, what the what the success rates are. They know it's a hard work. I don't think I think they're always a little overwhelmed. They always say day two. Um, by the end of day two, people's heads are ready to explode. And then you know, some of them get it together by day four, the test day. Some of them don't. But um, subjectively, I reserve the right to say yes or no, and I, and, and not explain myself. You know, if well, I've had a couple guys who who really were smart guys, um, who probably knew the material. But when it came to teaching it, um, their method of teaching it was was very much a, a not passionate way of teaching it. Um, some guys, there was one guy in particular who really came from a, a corporate team building background who was very interested, uh, supposedly, in, in teaching the program and integrating the program and some things he was doing. He was also a firearms instructor. And at the end of the day, it just became really apparent that there was value in marketing under combat focus shooting, but... Um, apparently not enough value for him to kind of take it seriously and apply himself. And even though he passed the written test, um, you know, sub- on the subjective teaching test, you know, he did not get certified. So um, I, I can be pretty picky about that. Um, and specifically, I'm looking for guys who are going to challenge me, challenge the program, challenge their students, and uh, and then do it all with integrity. Right. And that passion is an important thing. You, you know, all the, the instructors that I've talked to or talked to, talk to, um, like yourself and uh, just even at schools or, you know, through Gunfighter Cast or people I've met online because they listen to Gunfighter Cast, is there's kind of something the, the way everybody has a passion about it. Uh, like we talked about earlier in the way we grew up or, or whatever, but, you know, the way people talk, you know, whenever somebody brings up guns, uh, I just can't help but jump in the conversation, and I want to. I want to. I want to offer something. I'm not there trying to prove that you know I know something or you know get brownie points like I'm a, a cool guy, a tough guy. It's not why I do gunfighter cast. It's just uh, I have a passion for teaching and a passion for guns. Uh, you put them both together, and it's just it's uh it's if you don't have that love and that desire and the motivation when you're in front of the class, because you're not going to feed off of that class's motivation. You're the one who's going to give them the motivation. So if you have an instructor that's not doing that, uh, I used to be have run a team of instructors, and um, some of them I'd have to pull them off, and you know, look, you need some work for a while, and uh, have them just teach the other instructors for a little bit until they can actually, you know, get across that motivation, and you can start losing people, and uh, it's just it's it's a key thing that a good instructor is going to have in that classroom or platform environment, especially. Yeah, there's got to be a desire. You know, we talk about five uh, key fundamentals and. You know, their knowledge, you have to, it's not just information. The guy that reads the PowerPoint, he's not an instructor. You know, he's, he's, right. he's a pain in the ass usually. Uh, but, you know, you got to have knowledge. you got to have information that you actually want to give to the other person that you own, that you, you really understand so you can answer those why questions. You know, and you, you've got to have uh, a certain amount of communication skill. Obviously, communication skill is really important. you got to have uh, uh, some kind of behavioral, psychological insight into your students. You have to be able to connect with your students. Uh, and you have to have a desire to do it. You know, that's what we put that uh, fourth out of, out of five, but it's important. It's really important. And then the least important is, is ability. You know, we talk about you need to have an ability. You should be able to, to actually use the gun and shoot the gun and do well and actually perform the drills well that, that you're advising the students to perform. And when we say well, we mean uh, good balance, speed, and precision. You, you don't have to outshoot your students by any stretch. Anybody who thinks they're doing that, I think, you know, I think they're really foolish. At least they have a very limited uh, student body if they think they always have to outshoot their students. But... Um, you know, that is important. It's, and it's important to the student too, that they know the guy that they're, they're learning from 
is capable of doing it. Now, obviously, you reach a certain point of health or age um, where you can't do it as well as you used to be able to do it, but you can still uh, do it with integrity and, and do the drills the way they're meant to uh, be done to show people what their limitations are sometimes. So those five uh, factors are really important to all of our instructors, and I think any instructor in any program, uh, but desire is, is one that's sometimes overlooked. You know, I agree with that ability being last, too. You know, there's nothing better than having somebody who doesn't really know anything on day one, and then by the end of the week, they're pretty much out shooting me. Uh, that, that pretty much gives me feedback that, wow, I actually accomplished something here, and I feel like I did something, and I know that person left with more than they came with. Uh, it's a, yeah. That's a good feeling itself, you know. It's huge. And, and, you know, Wiz is a very ego-driven environment, you know, the, the tactical, you know, type Absolutely. A, law enforcement, security, competition shooter, um, people that want to be able to defend themselves and control their environment, carry a gun. It's a very ego-driven. And I think too often, you know, in any other endeavor, you would never think that, you know, uh, you know, just use any of the cliches. You never would, would think that um, Muhammad Ali's coach could beat up Muhammad Ali. That's not the point. He's just there to make Muhammad Ali better. Um, you know, whatever, Tiger Woods. You wouldn't think that Tiger Woods' coach is going to go out and win the Masters. That's not his point. His point is making Tiger Woods better. And and that's really what we do. You know, we, we're there to make other people better, and it really is kind of irrelevant how good we are at it. But unfortunately, the egos get involved, and, and people start worrying about that. Um, but I, I do think the focus needs to be on knowledge and communication skills, and then the desire to do it and the ability to do it is helped by understanding your students. And that might mean you only teach in a very narrow niche. Or it might mean that you understand a wide variety of students and you can deal with people on different levels. But uh, either way, instructor development is a huge part of, of what we do at ICE training and, and uh, very proud of that segment. In fact, that's probably the segment that I'm busiest in um, in all of what we do because I do have so many other great instructors out there teaching the programs now. Um, you know, we've got guys all over the place. I've got, um, you know, Rob Hammock is really busy down in Texas. Uh, We've got Mike Ryder is very busy out in uh, Sioux Falls uh, area, South Dakota, Minnesota, Iowa, right out in there. Um, we've got guys that have been teaching for, for a long time. Uh, Tony Namio in Wisconsin is one that comes to mind. Randy Smith in Pennsylvania, he got certified back in 2005. Uh, Ken O'Donnell uh, teaches at a law enforcement academy. He's very busy down in the Four Corners area. Cliff Byerly out in, uh, at, with LAPD, he's very busy teaching. So we have a lot of guys all over the country. Uh, teaching the program, and that's great because the more end users that are getting to train with the other guys in the program, the more I can uh, worry about the more advanced tactical programs, the military law enforcement stuff, and then, of course, also the instructor development inside and outside of uh, combat focus shooting. Okay. All right, Rob, say I signed up for a class and showed up ready to rock. What can I expect from your staff, and what would your staff expect from me? Uh, well, when you come to a uh, one of our combat focus shooting classes, the first thing that you're going to get, um, we'll kind of gather everybody around and everybody, you know, load up your three magazines, make sure you have a gun on. We don't care if the gun's loaded or unloaded, uh, leave it whatever way it is. We're going to deal with that after we give our, our safety rules and things like that. Um, just kind of gather everybody around and we're going to talk about three things. They are safety, comfort, and competency. And, uh, I'm not going to go through all three of those kind of little mini speeches right now, but the one I'll isolate is part of our comfort speech has to do with intellectual comfort. And what we're going to expect from our students is that they have a training attitude that they are there to understand the program and the justifications for it. So we'll tell people that you're not, unless you already own the skills, unless you've been practicing in ways that were very congruent and consistent with combat focus shooting, you're not going to own these skills after two days, right? You're only going to get so many reps 
you're going to have to go out and practice on your own to really own the physical skills. But you can own the information. You can turn this raw information we're going to be giving you into knowledge if you understand it and if you process it. And that will, of course, set a base for your practice and for your physical skill development over months, weeks, years, however long you're going to continue to, to develop. So understanding, being intellectually comfortable with the information is vitally important to us. So we're going to put a little bit of the responsibility on you to ask us why if you don't understand. Why are we telling you to do something? Why are we telling you to do something in a certain way? Because we can't see inside your heads, you know, for, for, for practical purposes, we're standing there. If you're doing the right thing physically, if you're doing the right things that we've told you to do, but you're standing there thinking, wow, this is really stupid. I don't know why I'm doing this. That doesn't help anybody. So we want that challenge. We want that from the students. You know, I think too many students have been given advice by instructors who don't want to answer questions. And they've been told, you know, well, when you go to a school, just keep your mouth shut, listen to what the instructor says, do what he tells you, because he knows more than you do. Um, you know, that's kind of a self-fulfilling uh, security blanket, as far as I can tell. You know, the instructors that are out there giving that advice are probably the ones who either don't want to or can't answer the why questions in the first place. So if somebody, you know, if a student raised their hand and asked why, and they get a blow-off answer like, well, this is how we did it, you know, in my military unit, or this is how we did it in the police department I worked for, this is how I did it in my fight. Um, or, or somebody, you know, worst worst case scenario says, well, watch me do it, and they, they give a demonstration of their magic shooting ability. I don't think that really helps the student at all. Um, you're not answering the student's question. You're just blowing them off. You know, and the, the other version of the blow-off is, well, it's just another tool for your toolbox. Um, try it. You might like it. You know, and again, that's that's a blow-off. I, I, don't, I think students, you know, training resources are limited. Um, and, and while we can sit around the table as, as guys who train all the time, training junkies, people in the industry, and say, well, all training is good training. Any training you go to, you're going to get at least one thing out of, and that makes it good. Well, the fact is that's not really true, and I, I, will, I will bust that myth right now. Um, if someone is only going to train once every year or once every two years, if they're only going to go to one professional training school in their entire life, it's not enough to say get at least one good thing about it or all training is good. In fact, for that person, the person that has very limited training resources, all training is not good and some training is really, really bad. And what they need to do is really be picky about who they go train with and make sure they're going to get more than just one thing out of it. So when you come to the Combat Focus Shooting Program, we're going to put a, a responsibility on you to ask the why questions. And what you can expect from us is, is as detailed as we can or as detailed as we need to, giving you those answers. You know, so when guys go through my instructor development school, I tell them that in any given two-day course, they might only put out half the information that they get from the instructor class because it's, there isn't enough time, on the one hand, to teach everybody all the background stuff and all the underlying fundamental principle um, clinical empirical research stuff that leads to here's why we want you to reload like this. The other reason is that, for the most part, there's a huge difference between an instructor-level person who's, who's kind of geeky and passionate about this information and the end user that just wants the skills. So we remind our, our instructors in, the, in that class that you don't need to teach them everything you know about the way the eye processes information during dynamic critical incident. You just need to put out some simple concepts, and then when the student says they don't understand and they ask why, that's when you pull out the extra information. So it's not like it's a ninja secret. It's just that, hey, there's only so much time. There's only so much interest from the students. If the student needs the extra information, you give it to them. So you can expect that we want you to ask questions and that we want you then to listen to the answers and realize that we're not going to blow you off. And I think that's probably the biggest difference um, between the combat focus shooting program and the 
average shooting program, which I think just expects students to do things. We want students to understand things, um, not just do them. Um, you know, I think that's much more important uh, exchange of information rather than us just stand there, call drills, and watch you put holes in paper. Right. Going along with what you said, you know, I, I use the phrase a lot. I've said on Gunfightercast numerous times that you know I don't have it all figured out. I have my ways of doing things, but I always give out the why. You know, I don't. This is this is what I know, but this is why I know what I know, and this is why I'm telling you that it's a way to do it. You know, I, I can't give you the exact way to do everything. Your hands might be a lot smaller than mine. They may be bigger than mine. Uh, you may have a little stubby arm that you can't you know put your pouches where I put them. Uh, everybody's different. Having a, a, those tools in the toolbox, uh, well, you can not really uh, the negative side of that, using that as a, a cop out or just trying to get rid of a, a question. You know, whenever you have the opportunity to give somebody the why, uh, an instructor is actually a salesman. You're selling what you're teaching. If you want that person to go out there and sure. use that and and do those skills that you're teaching that person, then you got to sell it to them. You know, uh, we use the acronym in the Marine Corps uh, with them. What's in it for me? If I don't give that in that class. Uh, I'm going to give one in the beginning and the end, and uh, I'm going to reinforce everything that I talk about with, okay, here's what we're going to do. All right, and this is why I'm doing it this way. This is why I'm saying uh, index the pistol slightly uh, into your peripheral vision right in front of your face and because that's the way I teach doing magazine changes, uh, bringing it into your workspace or your zone of dexterity. And here's why. you know, And I give an example of uh, threading a needle uh, when you're going through a haunted house or – threading a needle whenever you're getting mortared or rocketed and you're scared to death and you're not going to hold it away from your body. You're going to hold it right up in your zone of dexterity and do that. And that's kind of selling that point of why I'm saying bring a weapon in there. Uh, are there a faster way to do it? Yes. But, you know, it's kind of a more stable thing, I guess you could think of. And I try to sell that uh, when I'm doing yeah. that. And I think that's a good point that instructors make. You know, you're actually, you're being a salesman. So if you get the chance to answer a question of why, there's no reason to brush that off. You should be jumping all over that because somebody else has the exact same question. Yeah, and that's and actually that's something that goes up on the corner of the whiteboard um, in all the instructor development classes. Sometime around day two, when we start really talking about these why questions, I put on the board: teaching is selling. You know, not in a bad way. It's just hey, you've got to convince these people. You've got to explain to these people why this is important. Otherwise, they're just going to go to the next guy and he's going to say something else, and the next guy's going to say something else. The next guy's going to say they don't understand any of it. Potentially, they just end up confused and hesitating in the middle of the fight. So. You're right. What we do is we'll say the other side of our comfort, I talk about intellectual comfort, physical comfort means that you actually can perform the skill sets that we're asking you to perform. And what we'll tell people is just like you said, if your hand doesn't fit the gun the same way mine does, we will modify the recommended technique for you. But what we also were very careful about saying is to avoid the it's a way, not the way, or just another tool for the toolbox situation is we'll tell people that I'm going to give you the best piece of information I possibly can. You know, and I will passionately believe it's the best piece of information I, I can give you, or I'll just tell you I don't know. But, you know, if it's within the framework of the program, I'm going to give you the best piece of information I have. You need to accept that next week I might change my mind. I might find out I was wrong. I might find a better way. Some student might say, what about this? And I'm going to say, I love that. But today, you know, uh, October 20th, 2010, this is the best piece of information that I possibly have to give you. And that's what I'm going to give you. And I'm not going to caveat it, and I'm not going to apologize for it. I'm going to give it to you, and I'm going to explain why to the best of my ability. I might be wrong, and I might change my mind tomorrow. But what you get is what you got for today. And, and I think students appreciate that. Um, I know that, like, Paul Howe, for example, um, wrote in his book, um, Thoughts on Tactical Training, I think was the name of it, his book that he put out um, last year about, about training for instructors. 
and program development. And, and he was one of the few guys I've seen kind of take this, this approach that we take, which is don't waste the student's time. Don't worry about teaching 10 different ready positions. Teach the ready position you believe in. Teach, you know, whatever, the, if you're talking about room entries, whatever it is you're talking about, teach the one that you think they most need to know. And he sort of talked about, I think, uh, in the same way I do, training resources are limited. You only have so much time. Students only have so much energy. Don't waste their time with a million different A ways. Give them the way that you think they need. And I, I definitely subscribe to that. Yeah, you know, that makes perfect sense. And I completely agree with that. And uh, I, I can think of, while you're talking there, I'm thinking of instances where I do that and where, where I have done it and uh, where instructors have done it with me. And I, I really did appreciate it. I didn't really think about it at the time or think about what I was doing or what the instructor was doing whenever they were teaching me. But uh, now that you actually talk about that, it, it kind of it really does make sense. And I think students do appreciate that because, you know, you don't you might have a lot of things figured out today, but then you might have them figured out differently a week from now uh, because you, you see something else and you're always going through new evidence uh, and, and maybe finding new things. And then as, as more technology comes on the market and different equipment, uh, things may change. Uh, it's just that's why I think an instructor like. What you have going on with combat focus being not only open to change, but actually pursuing it and uh, looking for opportunities, diagnosing deficiencies and, uh, you know, identifying problems or successes and, uh, you know, exploiting or uh, correcting them. Uh, I think that that really uh, that that's a good answer for the question I asked you earlier is what sets you apart from other organizations, because there's a lot that I don't see doing that. They're teaching the same stuff that they've taught for the last 10 years. And I think uh, it's the what we teach is too dynamic to get to stay sucked into the exact same way of doing things over and over again and not changing. Agreed. Agreed. All right, well, that's the end of part one of episode number 36 of Gunfighter Cast. Look for episode number 37 coming up real soon. Uh, I'm going to give you guys that subscribe a few days to pull this one in. Uh, I don't want anybody to pull in the part two and not get part one. Like, that happens pretty often. So uh, this part two will be coming up really soon. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show.